You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. In this episode, we speak quantitative and systematic investments with two folks who have a great deal of experience in the space. One manages a hedge fund selection team in Paris, London, and New York, overseeing fund due diligence and onboarding of managers who trade via a variety of products. The other is in business development at a New York-based manager that uses an investment process that takes a human emotion out of the trade in order to produce disciplined portfolios. Perhaps not surprising, they are both engineers by education and use these skills in their own way in this part of the industry. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. This is Alternative Thinking. I'm James Barron with CASA. Today we have Wasim Saka with Luxor Asset Management and John Olivier Caron with Fort LP. Let's start with self introductions. Uh, start with you, J.O. Thank you, James. Uh, thank you for, for having Fort on your, on your show. Um, people call me J.O., uh, it's just shorter and easier than Jean Olivier. Uh, I'm Canadian from Montreal. Uh, I did uh, engineering studies uh, and ended up working in, in finance uh, out of Asia to start with, uh, mainly involved in equity derivatives uh, at several banks, uh, fund derivatives. Um, and I've always been um, intrigued and, and interested in, in quantitative investment solutions. Uh, as you all know, banks have built over the last decade a plethora of uh, risk premium solutions, uh, indices uh, that institutional investors can buy in, uh, even to a certain extent, uh, retail investors through uh, aggregators of risk premium. Um, and so I, I've been at Ford for five years now. It's, it's, I view this uh, experience as a fusion between my engineering background and the experience I've gained working at banks and equity derivatives, and I'll be delighted to speak about uh you know our quant firm uh and our our investment philosophy very cool well let's get into that so how does fort trade and uh, what what kind of portfolios do you guys run for for investors yes that's a uh, that's obviously a fundamental question uh i would say the uh the dna of the firm is is rooted in uh harvesting market inefficiencies and we want to work with persistent market inefficiencies so inefficiencies that we think will prevail for 100 years for instance um the firm was founded in 1993 and you know throughout this 28 year history we really have honed on four uh, market inefficiencies. Uh, momentum is one. Uh, we actually have two strategies. One is uh, following momentum. Uh, the other one is trying to anticipate momentum. We also try to work with the reversion principle. So we think that uh, the equity market is prone to reversals and we want to capture that. So that's something that we also think is, is persistent. Um, so we have a mean reversion strategy, uh, and last but not least, we try to work in equity space on the value and quality, uh, premium. Um, so we have those four silos again, harvesting what we think are persistent inefficiencies. 
And I would add to that that the the superseding principle at Fort is to have uh, an adaptive framework um, to keep our strategies fresh. So although I've I've just mentioned that you know we work with momentum and momentum we think will prevail for the next hundred years, it's been present for you know during the past hundred years. We also believe that momentum might uh, switch from one asset class to another or might uh, have a different shape. Uh, it might be a, a more dynamic momentum or a slower momentum. So we want our strategies to adapt those, to those uh, changing regimes, whether it's asset classes, uh, trading timeframes, or even models themselves. Wow, that's a lot of that's a lot uh, a lot going on in there. All these different areas. Um, you know, when you were talking about following momentum and anticipating it, uh, I started to think actually of traffic signals. And you know, people get to the light and there it's red, and then it's gonna, you know, they're they're kind of anticipating when it's gonna hit green again. Um, what kind of signals do you guys look at in the markets to to? I mean, following momentum, I I, I can kind of get relatively easily. You, you, you have moving averages and such, but how, how can you anticipate when the, this, that's going to change? And is that, is that related a lot to the, your mean reversion and, and reversal strategy? Yeah, that's, that's a very uh, good question, James, uh, to follow up. I mean, uh, our momentum anticipation strategy is by far our biggest strategy. Uh, it's half of our 6 billion in assets. Uh, and maybe it's because it's intriguing. Uh, you're right. It, it, it might be a little bit more challenging to anticipate momentum rather than follow momentum. Um, you know, so mm -hmm. what we try to do, um, we really try to pick a bottom and we try to pick a top for every market that we trade on any given day. And, you know, to anticipate momentum, in a sense, you want to be early in and early out. And, and one way to be early in is effectively to identify either uh, a top in the market to sell or a bottom in the market to buy. Um, mm -hmm. We call that strategy contrarian. And the way we build the signals around picking bottoms and tops is to look at historical highs and lows. So we will, we will try to detect what could be a potential bottom or a top at time T plus one using historical uh, high and low patterns, basically. Wild. Well, let's go to uh, let's go to Wasim and and because he he's at Lixor. I guess Wasim, you see everything, and uh, let, let's hear what your 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 past hit. You know your history, your background, and what you guys are doing at Lixor, and uh, then we'll get into some of these more these deeper questions here. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, great. Um, first of all, thank you, and and it's a pleasure to be uh, here today with uh, with you. Uh, my name is uh, Wasim Saka. Um, I've been with Lixor Asset Management for about ten years now. As a background, I have an engineering degree uh, in applied mathematics and computer science, uh, followed by a master's degree uh, in asset management and risk management. And after a few years in software companies, structuring um, and other you know, short experiences, I joined Lixor um, in 2009, uh, where I'm now a member of the hedge fund analyst team based in, uh, in New York. Um, I oversee the team in charge of selecting CTA, Global Micro, uh, relative value strategies, including risk premia uh, and other discretionary RV strategies. Um, and so my day-to-day -day is really to monitor the hedge fund space, um, select the best names um, and see, you know, how we can direct investment to those uh, names because we have different ways to invest in hedge funds within Lexor. Um, and the idea is really to monitor the space, select the best managers 
and and try to uh, see how we can partner with uh, with them. Um, a couple of words in uh, on Lexor, maybe as you asked about that. Um, and so uh, Lexor is, is basically an asset management company, uh, fully owned by uh, Société Générale. Um, we currently run about 190 billion of assets under management. Broadly speaking, about 60% of that is in ETF uh, out of Europe. 25% of the assets are in uh, internal funds, actively managed by Elixir portfolio managers, and about 15% mm. in external managers. Um, so we'll call it about 25 billion um, being invested in external managers, the bulk of which, of course, is being invested in, in hedge funds, uh, which is where I sit. Uh, and for us, hedge fund investment actually can come through different ways, uh, different formats. The first one uh, mm -hmm. is usage. So we have uh, one of the largest, if not the largest usage platform uh, with 7 billion of assets under management. As you know, usage is the main investment structure currently in Europe, not only in Europe, because it's also an investment vehicle that actually attracts a lot of money um, out, uh, mm -hmm. out of Latin America as well, as well as uh, Asia. So that's a business that we've uh, been running for, uh, for a while now. Uh, in addition to usage, we also run what uh, we call advisory mandates, uh, especially out of North America for US and Canadian clients, where basically we help institutional investors uh, like pension plans, endowments, etc., to pick the best hedge fund managers, structure them in manager account formats, or eventually direct allocations. Uh, and also we have those investors to do their portfolio construction, allocation, uh, in order to meet their long-term uh, targets. Um, and finally, uh, more recently, we've been able also to uh, think about co-investment and do co-investment in you know, single trades, mm. single themes, opportunities, which is something that has been rising more and more. Um, and so basically that's our mandate. You know, For us, hedge fund can go from the most liquid, which is usage daily, to the least liquid, you know, fund that can be quarterly, annually, or co-investment themes that can be less liquid. Um, and our job and my job is to monitor that and, and, and to select the best managers and see where they can fit. Wow. A lot there too. Wow. This is fantastic. Uh, so I'm interested, like Latin American and, and Asian investors, you said are putting a, a lot into use. It's, uh, I mean, it, it seems kind of obvious to me uh, from what I've seen of the EU, like it's it's something that was made for the EU market and such. But uh, why why do these these other folks in other continents uh, take a look at usage and, and are gravitating toward them? Yeah, it's a good question. And actually, it's something that we also discovered um, while doing usage and while marketing um, our usage funds. Uh, as you said, usage was created for the you know European investors and it's European regulation um, at first. Um, mm -hmm. The reality is that also, you know, the usage framework offers a lot of, I think, added values that go beyond, you know, European investors. So liquidity, you know, usage, I think 80% of the usage universe currently is daily. Yeah. So that's something that actually a lot of investors need um, and not only European ones. Um, also, the, um, you know, the risk framework around usage in terms of diversification, in terms of limits, uh, VAR, concentration, how you deal and how you monitor and how much exposure you can go to your counterparts, et cetera. So all that actually uh, puts usage investments under a framework that removes a lot of the stress that can come with investing in hedge fund, let's say, for the lack of better words, um, which is also something that go you know, beyond European investors. The other thing is that when you think about the allocators currently, um, most you know, investors are based you know, in different locations. So when you think about uh, an mm -hmm. asset manager or about an investor or an insurance company, they might have, you know, um, 
location in Europe and an office in Europe, but also they have location in Latin America, in Asia, etc. And I think what we've seen also is a lot of convergence in terms of selecting funds and investments. So once you have a fund that is approved somewhere, it becomes available in other places, which helps a lot actually leveraging on what we do in Europe so that other regions and other countries can, uh, can invest. So I think, yes, the liquidity, the risk framework that comes with usage, the fact that many um, you know, allocators are based across many regions, um, the fact also that you have a lot of money out of Latin America that is managed out of the US or Spain or other countries where mm-hmm. you have you know, the headquarter uh, that is uh, responsible for selecting the names, that actually has, has facilitated a lot uh, the penetration of the US market in this region. Actually, we've been very successful raising money out of Brazil, out of uh, Asia, Japan, um, or, or, or Korea as well. Um, so that's something, of course, that um, that was nice to see. The bulk of the assets, of course, remained out of Europe, but we've seen a lot uh, being raised outside Europe. Very cool. And you noted, you know, usits that you you have on your platform. You have, a, you said, internally managed portfolios. I think about twenty five percent, and I imagine fund to fund. And you have your, and and you're probably like you're, you're utilizing the managed account platforms. I imagine fairly fairly uh, extensively uh, to allow investors to get. Uh, I guess free access to their assets and not have not place that into a fund, but having the managers having that their access to do the trading and such, which is uh, it's it's it, that's a growing area as well. Um, exactly. But how does how does a co-invest work? Because if you're in, I always pictured that with the PE side or infrastructure or something that's a bit more in the private market. Is, it, is that do you have that as well, or is it something along the lines of um, specific bespoke portfolios or into the portfolio managers that you're, that you're speaking about for the co-invest? So for the co-invest, actually, the idea was really to leverage on the relationships that we have with the, uh, with the managers that we select, um, that we trust mm. and that we work with. Um, so sometimes, you know, you have market dislocations, you have opportunities that are um, very interesting, but the manager cannot necessarily size it as much as he wants in his fund. Because, you know, he has uh-huh. to remain diversified. He has to uh, trade other things. But you can think about trades and opportunities. You can think about what happened, you know, in, in March last year with a lot of assets selling off. You can think about what happened in the credit market back in 2008, um, mm-hmm. where basically the upside is, is, is very big. But at the same time, your manager cannot, you know, put all his money on that trade eventually. And given that we have a large list of hedge fund managers that we selected, that we approved, uh, that we work with, um, and so the idea generation becomes actually very easy because it's already a relationship that we have. And then, you know, the manager can bring that idea. Once we like it, we approve it. We can talk about it to uh, other investors and then, you know, try to direct money to that single theme or single trade um, with, you know, an upside that is known, with a downside also that is known, and then with a structure that is outside the front, but more, you know, dedicated uh, sleeves and 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 funds that can you know uh, benefit from that single theme or single trade idea basically. I I think you know what you mentioned Wasim is is very interesting because we also so we run our own usage uh, structure. Uh, we've been successful uh, in in capturing part of that European uh, appetite, but also we've seen um, success emerge from. Uh, Asia. And to Wasim's point, I think the the appeal of USITs, especially to some of our Japanese investors, is that the canvas uh, resembles what they might have uh, in-house in terms of their risk management structure. 
So for them, let's say for a Japanese investor that has very stringent measures in terms of diversification rules or counterparty risk um, monitoring, going into a USITS will alleviate some of the internal burden. So they find the structure to be very appealing and easy to use, uh, given that I'm not saying that they're, they're, they're becoming lazy and they don't want to do their own work. But, but getting into a USITS framework facilitates, I guess, the acceptance of the investment because of, of some of the mm-hmm. rules uh, implied in, in USITS land. So we, we've also seen uh, some success uh, emerge out of, um, uh, out of Asia uh, in, in, in our USITS structure. Very cool. Well, speaking of success, like how do you at Fort um, kind of, I guess, pitch your strategies? How do you explain them to someone that maybe is not an engineer like you and Wasim, <laughs> and uh, they're, they're, they have this kind of black box fear? Like, how, how do you how do you couch it so that it's 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 um, you know they're able to understand it bite size, but also can give a, a like a fulsome understanding of what to expect going forward in different market regimes or whatever might might occur going forward. Yeah, it's um, to me this is a it's it's a frustrating question. Um, this is something you know I've been facing. It's the same thing in equity derivatives when you're trying to sell some sort of complicated structure. Uh, the the, the mm-hmm. complexity. I, I view the human brain as the most complex engine here. So if if you're if you're comfortable dealing with even a long short equity manager or a discretionary macro manager. Um, I don't understand why you wouldn't be comfortable dealing with a systematic manager in a sense that the discretionary uh, portfolio manager will decide based on perhaps an emotional response on, you know, how he feels uh, on, on any given day. I know, I know there are criteria um, that, that will um, canvas the, the investment thesis, but mm-hmm. you're dealing with a human being and that human, uh, you know, like, like you, like me uh, and Wasim will, will react to events and, and will be, um, who knows how they're going to react. And, and a systematic manager is, is selling you basically a, a recipe, uh, a time-tested recipe um, that mm-hmm. will take into account um, data points, uh, historical data, data points. So obviously a systematic manager will will run run its strategy based on 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 history. It's it's a it's a backward looking strategy, um, and we tr- we're really trying to infer what could happen tomorrow, you know, based on on what we we we, we perceive uh, as as history. And so, uh, but but we do it within within very specific boundaries. And I think this is where you you can see a distinction between the discretionary guy and and the systematic guy in a sense that. You know, the, the, the discretionary guy will look at the past, will obviously look at events and, and, and try to gauge, you know, uh, what it entails in terms of future uh, market uh, movements or amplitude uh, in the market. And whereas we do it with, with, with no emotions, we, we really look at the data, we really look at the persistence in the data, we really look at... Um, what the data is telling us and, and, you know, we remain very cold hearted and we make a decision based on, 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 on what the past is telling us. So, you know, when it comes to the black box explanation, again, I, I view uh, a discretionary uh, approach to be even more black box than a systematic um, investment yeah. method. 
and it's open it's open to the whims of you know how they got to work that day or how they're yeah how they're feeling and stuff yeah yeah and there is actually maybe to, to add to what you was saying on the mm-hmm. on the investor side and um how we view that at Lixor, i think you know on our side we we've had a very long experience in in quant uh, investing generally um ctas but also other quant uh, strategies uh, maybe because we're a French company at the beginning and we have a lot of engineers, as you said, so we have uh, you know, less fears of, of yeah, trying true. to dim- <laughs> demystify uh, some of the black boxes. Um, but the reality is that you know, the first investment that we made or the first managed account in the, UCIT, uh, sorry, in the CTA space um, was done you know, back in 2000, I think. So it's you know, more than 20 years ago. And even now, we still have CTAs and quant managers in our UCITS mandates in our fund of hedge funds in the advisory mandates when possible. So it's a strategy that, that, that we like, and there are a lot of features that we try to also talk about uh, with investors. The first one being the simplicity um, and, and the fact that, you know, trend and CTS journey, you can understand what they're doing. A discretionary manager, you know, as you said, depends. So consistency of behavior and returns and uh, um, exposure can change over time for a CTA, you know, if the space is trendy, if the marks are trendy, you know what to expect from a manager, right? Um, you also like when you think about the broader portfolio that an investor can hold, um, mm-hmm. CTAs and trend managers and quant managers can bring also directionality and volatility because now and since 2020, you know, volatility has picked up in markets and portfolios have been maybe closer to their long-term target in terms of all. If you go back post, um, you know, GFC and during the period where volatility has been very, very low, actually investors have been struggling uh, to have vol in their portfolio and having a strategy like a CTA mm. or a quant manager that can come with directionality with a volatility that is consistent over time actually is very important also in, in, in the mandate that has many hedge funds and that can have a lot of RV, you know, fixed income RV or micro or other type of strategy that are not very volatile. Um, you also like the liquidity because when you think about CTAs, quant generally, they invest in liquid uh, assets and that's something that is very important. And also even from a structural perspective, uh, when you invest in CTAs or, or liquid strategies like trend, um, the, you know, you don't need to, to put all your cash. So you can think about ways that also allow you to do other things. So in CTS, you can oh, yeah. national funding. Um, you can, you know, invest 20% to have exposure to 100%. And then that free cash can be done or can be used to do something else. So all that actually for us is, is very appealing. Um, this being said, it's not easy to hold an investment like CTA or a trend because trend measures can spend, you know, 60, 70% of their time underwater. So it's not the easiest line to keep in your portfolio, to defend in your portfolio. But we also found that it's very difficult to time those investments because, you know, the skewness of the return, um, the, the the volatility of the return actually is very difficult to time. So we've always mm-hmm. been advocating for having, you know, an allocation to trend that can be higher or, or smaller, depending on the opportunity set elsewhere. Um, and what, you know, the market is, is, is telling us, um, but that's, you know, what, how we've been approaching the, um, the CTA and the trend space. We like it. We've been advocating, you know, for having an allocation when possible, um, and then benefit from, you know, all the uh, the advantages that uh, that it gives to investors. Yeah, it reminds me of a we had a China panel a while ago, and one person on their heads a well, it's family office that owns a dealer, and he was like, yeah, you know, in most markets, the markets go up and up and up and up and up and then drop down, and in Chinese markets, they go down and down and down and down and spike up, 
And that's kind of what's, what, what CTAs do. And that's, that's kind of thing that you want that non-correlation. So if you had a U.S. market or, or other market and you had maybe some China stocks, um, the diversification is great. It's, it's similar probably to, maybe it's similar to how managed futures works. Maybe that's something we can look into. But um, I was reading a book on risk li- lately and um, last night actually. And, you know, so there's kind of three, um, three, three ways to hedge the, you know, your, your tail risk. There's S&P puts really good, super expensive. Uh, or can be very, very expensive. You know, CDS, it's it's okay, uh, it's, but it's a lot cheaper. And then there's, they specifically said managed futures, uh, kind of free, uh, because you do have, you know, management fees, but you're not paying an explicit insurance payment. Uh, and also does a does a pretty good job of, of uh, you know, of, of basically creating money when there's just tails. And my little joke that I say is, you know, if you write CTA backwards, it's ATM because it usually pays off when everything is going down and you have that money available. So uh, do you find that, J.O., in your portfolios, does it have this kind of crisis alpha that that pays off when when people need it? Or is it, is it more of a just a non-correlated thing rather than a, than a negative correlation in bad times? Yeah, I think I think I, I think people need to focus on on the correlation aspect. It, it's it's true that historically, especially I would say post the Lehman shock, uh, uh, a lot of investors viewed CTAs or, or managed futures as uh, an insurance policy. Um, I've always been, uh, I mean, not a hundred percent reluctant, but rather reluctant to to uh, really promote. Uh, the trend strategy as a as an insurance policy, but I think it it, it does bring great benefits to uh, a pension portfolio, and and we've done we've done studies on you know the the especially the U.S. Uh, corporate and and, and public uh, pension landscape, which is obviously much more mm-hmm. underfunded than than the Canadian. Um, on the Canadian side of the border and, and Canadian portfolios have embraced this. I mean, they have a lot of teams internally that, that deal with, um, uh, with managed future like um, uh, strategies. But what's interesting in that study uh, on, on the funding ratio is, is you could, you could actually invest in a strategy with a, a rather low sharp ratio. You could go mm-hmm. as low as 0.2 um, with a zero correlation against your 60, 40, um, uh, let's say traditional portfolio, and 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 get great benefits uh, in terms of reduction of the overall volatility while maintaining a, a similar level of, of returns, and and this impacts a lot the the um, the potential forward-looking uh, funded ratio of those pensions because you know pensions will have liabilities and and they have a hurdle rate, and if you're at seventy percent of, of you know, funded, no. you don't want to drop to a level where you're suddenly at 60% funded or even below that. That's a valley of death there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, you're, it's impossible for you to climb back up to, to get to a fully funded stat, uh, status. So the, the, the investing in, in, in uncorrelated strategies and, and, you know, we at Fort have, have uh, maintained uh, rather low or, or even zero correlation to most traditional assets over our historical um, mm-hmm. a period of 28 years in business, um, invested, investing in, in low correlated, uh, strategies will have tremendous benefits, um, at the portfolio level, uh, and, 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 you know, uh, public pensions and corporate pensions in the U S have been, uh, embracing that, 
Um, and I'm sure Wasim has, has, has a lot to say about that as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And happy happy mm-hmm. to add, I think, yeah, I, I agree on everything that Gio said. Um, what's important, I think, to highlight and, and the way we present it also is that, yes, CTAs and trend actually has, um, you know, tremendous added value in, 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 in crisis periods uh, when you look at 08 or other periods. Um, the reality is that it's not a put option. So it's right. not something that would pay out, um, you know, the day where the equity market sells off. I think that's really the nuance that some investors sometimes are, are, are having troubles or expect and where the expectations can be, uh, can be under-delivered or missed. So, you know, when you have a trendy market and that CTS are jumping on the trend, when that equity market sells off, of course, the, you know, the day or the week or the month might be negative. So you don't expect each time the equity market to be down, your CTA to be, to be up. Um, and, and if that continues, and depending on the you know reaction period and the reactivity of each trend manager, because they don't all do the same the same trades, and they don't all uh, have the same signals, um, you know at some point CTAs and trend can capture that and can be very profitable uh, afterwards. Right. Two thousand eight is a very good example for for that. Um, so it's not a put option. I think it's really the, the the important thing that we try to to highlight is that if you have a negative month of a quarter, that means that your CTA investment will be positive. Maybe not, but if that continues, and that the signal readjusts to that, you know, profits can be can be quite uh, quite uh, quite uh, significant. So that's why we try also to mix, you know, CTAs with other strategies. Um, so for us, you know, when you think about uh, about risk mitigation and when you think about crisis alpha, um, you have you know to basically have an allocation that that makes sense and mix you know strategies that are. Um, Longer term than others, uh, also have some discretionary uh, global macro eventually because around those inflection point and turning point, it's also very helpful to have other managers and other strategies that give you that upside during the inflection point till your other you know signals that can be a little bit longer term capture what's happening. Um, so for us, it's all about you know what you hold in your portfolio, having something that is diversified and that that can play uh, play out well during the different phases. So you have an up market that, you know, continues for some time. You have your trend manager that can capture that. You have an inflection point where your macro manager can capture that and eventually a downturn where again, your trend manager can be there and give you the upside. So it's all about, you know, thinking about an allocation that makes sense, that is well diversified and that can capture different stage of, 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 of a market evolution. Yeah, and, and James, you have to remember that for us, like we're 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 really trying to uh, generate uh, absolute returns. So, you know, to go back to your insurance policies and the CDS example or the option example, I mean, when you when you're buying an option, you mm-hmm. know what the payoff is, you know how much you're paying. For us, like the ultimate game here is is to we don't want an investor to be. Uh, disappointed over long-term cycles of five, seven, ten years um, in, in their return stream with respect to, let's say, traditional assets like equities. So the the, the objective is still to to produce, uh, uh, you know, a level of return which is uh, equal, if not better, uh, in risk-adjusted terms to the traditional assets. But achieving this with with again almost no correlation to the traditional assets. And I think this is where we bring a benefit within the construct of that 
uh, crisis risk offset or or um, or you know alpha crisis that we've been we've been talking about. But you know ultimately the 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 initial objective is is to is to produce returns for our investors. Yeah, I know there's some math behind it. I, I've seen it demonstrated where, where even if you have a negative returning asset, but it's the correlation is such that you can have it. You can have the portfolio better off because of rebalancing. So. Uh, even though the long term, because I never really fully understood short, pure short funds, and uh, but if you add them to the, th- those types to a portfolio, it can help things out. Uh, and I loved your how you put it all together there. Uh, was seen with you know the CTAs, global macro, maybe re- mean re- uh, you know relative value. Uh, for so if you were to design maybe an all weather portfolio, uh, not to put you on the spot here, but so would you have like a? Is it more like a, a third, a third, a third, or or what, what sort of? Um, uh, what, what would be kind of the portfolio composition for the, both of those types of things? Just assuming like a naive, like you, it's a, it's a clean slate sort of thing. They don't have any other assets. So actually it depends a lot on the uh, investors, um, you know, constraints um, and also uh, the allocation that they, uh, they have to, uh, to that component compared to the rest of their, of their portfolio and what they hold uh, elsewhere. Um, what we've actually been, uh, Looking at uh, for 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 the clients who come to see us for uh, you know risk mitigating strategies like or risk offset or you know diversifying at least what they have on the on the long only side, mm-hmm. um, the strategies that you know are part of those uh, mandates generally are are trend of course that's that's part of it. Um, global macro is something also that is usually part of of, of that. Uh, a mix of discretionary and uh, quant macro uh, because even though you know both sleeves or both strategies can be under the same global macro uh, theme, they have very different behavior. You know, one is, you know, human trading um, and, and the person trading with, you know, views. The other one is more signal generator mm-hmm. generation and looking at different inputs. So we found the mix actually very interesting. Um, risk premium and RV strategies in general are also uh, very interesting because the way you think about and the way we think about the market is, Usually you have a quiet period where volatility maybe is low, yep. when things are moving, you know, but in a kind of uh, tunnel and, and you don't have huge upside or downside moves. And during those periods, you want something that harvests, you know, kind of risk premium. So you can think about risk premium, you can think about other RV strategies, even on the fixed income RV side or other, you know, um, um, strategies that like that quiet environment and, and leverage on that. Then you have eventually a spike on the upside or a move on the downside. So that's where you like your discretionary manager to be first in right. and to play those moves before uh, the market you know, starts to price those. Then actually the information flows to the market and then you start to have the trend that is going whether on the upside or the downside. And that's where you expect your CTA or trend manager to capture those moves. So how, that's how we, we kind of view the uh, the market cycles. Uh, and based on that, you know, those are the allocations that we usually look at, you know, trend, risk premium, or RV in general, and then discretionary uh, macro. The weight will depend a lot on the size, um, depend mm-hmm. a lot on the sensitivity to fees, for instance, as well, because when you think about uh, investing in trend and risk premium and RV strategy, sometimes it can be cheaper than investing in discretionary global macro that usually comes at the 2 and 20. Um, ah. So the fees are not the same. The liquidity might not be the same. So the weight, the allocation, the balance that you have between those allocations will also have to take into account, you know, the investor uh, constraints, the size that the investor is coming with, the liquidity that he wants to have. So then the weight will be a function, of, I think, of all that. But at least the, the, the building blocks will likely be uh, be the same. 
Very cool. And so what kind of size do you see investors coming in with Seam? And uh, I'll ask this to J.O. too, because I think you have a few different products, both in Canada and the U.S. But what seemed like, so if, did, to talk to you, is it like $100 million or a million or what is there, or how, how, did, how does it work from, uh, from a, like a, a client interaction point of view? Um, I think it, it, it depends. I mean, on the uh, on the usage side and uh, the fund that we have on the usage, uh, you know, the minimum investment is usually uh, 100K. Um, so, you know, oh. investors can come and pick and choose the names that they uh, they want to invest on. Um, on the, um, you know, on the more, more on the advisory side, if you're running a mandate for an institutional client, you know, if you're putting the infrastructure um, and then, you know, the cost is high, of course, you, you would require a higher minimum. Um, it's not you mm-hmm. know, a number that is uh, um, 100% kind of, uh, you know, uh, non-negotiable, but it depends really on, 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 the, uh, on the client and, and the investment that is, uh, that is behind. So we run mandates, you know, small ones, we run others that are a couple of billions. Um, so, you mm-hmm. know, as long as uh, uh, we can serve the client and, and, and we know the constraints on each side and it's profitable, uh, you know, for us, for the managers and helps the client meet uh, his long-term target and goals. Um, then we look at all that, uh, you know, all, all those opportunities. Just like Wasim, we are size agnostic, uh, so we don't discriminate on size, but we have obviously uh, larger uh, investors that are part of the institutional community uh, globally, uh, but we will try to address every market in accordance with the um, the constraints. So, you know, we, we, we are active in Canada, both on the institutional front and the retail front, mm-hmm. uh, we, we felt like there was uh, an interesting opening for us, uh, given the changes in regulation. I think it was back in 2019 uh, on Liquid Alts, um, the quant offering uh, to Canadian investors uh, was rather low and, and we, we felt we could fill a gap. So we'll, we'll adjust mm-hmm. it, you know, to, to that specific market. Uh, and obviously we have... We have um, uh, pension funds and sovereign wealth funds as investors as well, they, they come in in, in, in much larger um, investment size. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, I have one more question. How about like, how has maybe over the last, and both of you have a, like a lot of experience in, in the market here. Um, how has maybe the uh, experience of working with the primes changed over the last few years? Because we had, you know, we've had the, the Lauren, um, well, I guess back in the day, there was the LTCM stuff back in 98. So I remember that. And then there's, you know, the, the uh, great financial crisis. And then there's been some more stuff happening recently. So it's has working with the primes. Uh, how has that changed over, over the years in, in getting access to leverage or putting on trades and borrow and such? How, however, that might uh, might affect the uh, the areas that you're in, in trading. You start with uh, with Seam because you kind of have like a global view here. So actually, on our side, what we um, what we do, and here it will be more for the managed account uh, mm-hmm. business that we run, whether the offshore or the usage one. Um, and usually, what we do is is you know when we structure a managed account and we delegate trading, you know, to a given uh, manager to replicate his own fund, uh, we tend also to replicate the uh, trading infrastructure that the manager has. 
so that we minimize you know any tracking error any deviation between his trades and what he's doing on our behalf in our manager account so that's the starting point is look at what the manager has and then try to replicate that uh, on our on our side um, the other constraint also that we put for ourselves is actually to try to diversify as much as possible so i think you know back in 2008 or before um, you could have at that time, you know, big manager accounts of a couple of hundreds of million or maybe slightly smaller or, or bigger, maybe having, you know, one counterpart or two counterparts. I think today when you look at the manager accounts that we have, um, you won't find that because you try to, um, you know, have um, your main prime broker or your main uh, future clearer and have a backup and have a second one and, you know, cut your trades in between. Um, try to, you know, minimize the exposure that you have to those counterparts. Um, the usage regulation actually itself, when you think about the usage funds, uh, puts caps on how much exposure you can have to a single counterpart. So it depends, it can be 5%, 10%, 20%, depending on the nature of the uh, relationship that you have and the underlying that you're trading. But actually that puts another layer on the top of you know the structure itself and the, the manager himself to diversify his counterparts. Um, so I think what has evolved is um, the... the um, you know, regulation, of course, has pushed those banks and those counterparts um, to to comply with with the regulations. Um, also, to uh, to give more transparency, I would say, to investors, so you know, and you can monitor exactly how much exposure, how much free cash, how much initial margin uh, you're having, and you try to be as efficient as possible, so that you can withdraw all the free cash that is not needed mm-hmm. and manage it on your side in other, you know, more secure um, vehicles. Um, so I think that's that's what that's what has evolved is one diversifying the number of counterparts that you face, second the ability to monitor more easily um, the exposure that you have to each of those names, and then minimize the exposure that you have, and manage as much cash as possible away from uh, from uh, from them. Um, and we've been lucky and good, I think you know, not facing uh, any issues depending uh, or, or whatever you know the. Um, the um the scandal let's say was on on, on the counterparty mm-hmm. side um we've been uh, we've been lucky not to be um you know caught on any on any of those and we have a risk team actually that is very vigilant um that trades all those counterparts you know um uh, quite uh, quite severely and then once you have a counterpart that is dropping uh, from the minimum that you allow yourself um to uh, to work with basically you have to cut you know that relationship and move your exposure somewhere else yeah, I, I completely agree with Wasim. I think the institutionalization of the market, you know, a hedge, if you look at hedge funds maybe 20 years ago or 25 years ago, it was it was more of a fragmented universe of, of investors, maybe, you know, family offices or high net worth individuals. And, and, and now it's really an, an institutional business. And part of that, we, we get, um, you know, we get rated or we get graded, uh, on, on our way to mitigate the counterparty risk. So, you know, Wasim is right. We, we might have used maybe one counterparty two decades ago, and now, you know, we have multiple counterparties and, and, and this is uh, of, of extreme importance to us uh, to be able to, to reroute orders to one counterparty versus another, uh, really monitor uh, our exposure to, to each of our, um, uh, FCMs. Um, so that this is a, is, is, is it, it's, it, it's very important and, and it, it, it's part of the, the movement in, um, in institutionalization of, of the business. 
Very cool. Thanks. Well, I think we're at time. Thanks a lot, both of you. Thanks for seeing. Thanks to uh, J.O. for your time here. And uh, we look forward to have you guys on another podcast again sometime soon. Thanks again. In French the next time. We'll do it in French. Thanks. Oh, oui, oui. (laughs) (laughs) Avec plaisir. Cheers.